Today on Legalese, we will be discussing how to protect enumerated and unenumerated rights through a return to the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment's Privileges and Immunities Clause. Hey, greetings and welcome back to the show. Uh, this is Legalese. I am your host, Bob. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Uh, and especially, I would like to welcome anyone who may be new to the program. Uh, this is a podcast where we're mostly going to be discussing current events in law, politics, and culture. Now, real quick, you can find this show on a number of different platforms. You can find the main video version on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, and Spotify. You can find an audio-only version on Anchor and Apple Podcasts. You can go join the Illegalese community over at Locals.com, and you can do all of those super awesome things and read a bunch of articles uh, that I frequently write, usually about issues of constitutional law, over on Substack, and there are links to all of those pages down in this video's description. So, as for today, we have what I, I think is a really, really great episode, actually, uh, and this one came by viewer request, uh, and... In a recent video I did called Clarence Thomas is Right, I got a really good question from a new subscriber uh, named Star Dormany, and they asked, Did you address how Thomas would recover some of the unenumerated rights through the Privileges and Immunities Clause? Which ones and on what basis? And this relates to my defense in that video of Clarence Thomas's Dobbs concurrence in which he correctly identified substantive due process as a complete legal fiction that cannot be justified through any logical reading of the 14th Amendment's due process clause. He then suggests that the rights protected under substantive due process, both enumerated and unenumerated, would mostly be properly protected by the 14th Amendment through a return to the original public meaning of the Privileges and Immunities Clause. So today we are going to be discussing what exactly the original public meaning of the Privileges and Immunities Clause was, which means what did it mean to the people who gave it legal force, its framers and ratifiers, how was it meant to revolutionize the relationship between these states and individuals, and moreover, how did it lose its place as an enumerated power granted to Congress to ensure states could no longer enact laws that would violate certain rights, and how could this clause be recovered and rehabilitated to fulfill its initial purpose. Now, fortunately, we have a fairly comprehensive answer to most of those various questions. Uh, they were answered back in 2010 in the case of McDonald v. Chicago. And following the 2008 decision in D.C. versus Heller that found the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to own a gun for self-defense, it was immediately followed by a number of different cases seeking review on expanding Heller through an incorporation onto the states through the 14th Amendment. Now, for whatever reason, while most of the cases that were seeking incorporation were seeking it as a consequence of substantive due process, the court decided to grant cert on one specific case in which the petitioner, Otis McDonald, and his attorney, Alan Gura, sought review on a QP that specifically invoked incorporation through the Privileges and Immunities Clause. 
So the question presented in McDonald v. Chicago asked, quote, whether the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms is incorporated as against the states by the 14th Amendment's privileges and immunities or due process clauses, end quote. Now, the concept of defining rights as privileges and immunities comes from the common law, uh, and most notably, you will find that Blackstone covered them extensively in his 1765 commentaries. Now, the 14th Amendment's Privileges and Immunities Clause also traces its lineage through the Articles of Confederation and later to the Privileges and Immunities Clause in Article 4 of the Constitution. And the history, background, and case law regarding these early provisions informed the drafters of the 14th Amendment's version of the clause. So let's start with its meaning under the Articles of Confederation. Now, I, I believe it's Article 8, although I don't, I, I'm pretty sure it was other, Article 8 of the Articles of Confederation read, The free inhabitants of each of these states, paupers, vagabonds, and fugitives from justice accepted, shall be entitled to all the privileges or immunities of free citizens in the several states, and the people of each state shall enjoy, or in each state shall, excuse me, the people of each state shall have free ingress and regress to and from any other state and shall enjoy therein all the privileges of trade and commerce subject to the same duties, impositions, and restrictions as the inhabitants thereof respectively. Now, that clause served as a means to unite these states under the Articles to ensure the free flow of people between these separate sovereign states, and it also served as a precursor to the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4 of the Constitution, which prevents these states from discriminating against foreigners and abridging certain liberties. Now, under Article 4, the Philadelphia Convention in 1787 uh, recast the idea of privileges and immunities uh, as they were originally understood in the Articles of Confederation as follows. It says, The citizens of each state shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. Now, uh, the next place where the privileges and immunities clause comes up is the first place where it was uh, actually interpreted by the court, uh, and this comes from the court case of in 1824 of Corfield v. Coriel. This was a decision by Justice Bushrod Washington, uh, riding circuit for the District of, uh, District of Columbia Circuit Court of Appeals. So according to uh, Justice Bushrod Washington's opinion in Corfield v. Coriel, the Article 4 Privileges and Immunities Clause included things that are, quote, in their nature fundamental, which belong of right to citizens of all free government and which have at all times been enjoyed by the citizens of the several states which compose the union, including the following general heads, protection by the government, the enjoyment of life and liberty, and the right to acquire and possess property of every kind and to pursue and obtain happiness and safety. And Washington would go on to add that the benefit of the writ of habeas corpus, the right to maintain actions of any kinds in the courts, and to take, 
hold and dispose of property either real or personal. So Justin's, Justice Washington's opinion served as the authoritative explanation of the meaning of the Privileges and Immunities Clause uh, up until the point where the members of the 39th Congress, who would rely heavily on his interpretation, uh, drafted the 14th Amendment during his, and, and discussed it during the ratification debates thereof. So, for example, Senator Jacob Howard, one of the 14th Amendment's floor managers, recited a passage from Corfield uh, in his influential speech on the meaning of Section 1, which is where the Privileges and Immunities is found. And in this speech, he invoked both Washington's Ode and the Bill of Rights as both exemplifying privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. And during the debates over the Civil Rights Act of 1866, considered by many people as the precursor to the 14th Amendment, uh, Senator uh, Lyman Turnbull and Representative James Wilson both quoted Washington's Ode, they quoted Blackstone, and other broad common law and natural rights language that all relate to privileges and immunities. And... They would go on to say that the Constitution uh, ex implicitly extended the promise of interstate citizenship to all citizens, rich and poor alike. Uh, and according to uh, Professor Akhil Amar, who is perhaps our country's foremost 14th Amendment scholar, privileges or immunities had strongly implied a focus on civil rights. So now we get to the 14th Amendment and the Privileges and Immunities Clause. So the Reconstruction Congress, which was imbued with these natural rights principles, really like no other set of legislators that we had seen since the founding, uh, would enact the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And... This legislation is what led to the 14th Amendment, which protected citizens' privileges or immunities, as well as providing for uh, equal protection and due process of law. Now, in the relevant part, the 14th Amendment provides that, quote, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the United States, end quote. Now, unfortunately, the Privileges or Immunities Clause met its untimely demise in the Slaughterhouse case, and Slaughterhouse held that uh, the clause protected only the privileges or immunities of federal citizenship uh, and not those incident to citizenship of the state, and that nearly all leading constitutional scholars now agree, however, that the Slaughterhouse interpretation of the 14th Amendment's Privileges and Immunities Clause is absolutely wrong as a matter of both text and history. So, for example, Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe writes that the slaughterhouse cases incorrectly gutted the Privileges and Immunities Clause. And going back to Professor Akilamar, he agrees, saying that, quote, virtually no serious modern scholar, left, right, or center, thinks that slaughterhouse is a plausible reading of the 14th Amendment, end quote. So what Slaughterhouse rejected specifically was a case where workers were seeking protection of an unenumerated right to contract one's own labor, which was very similar to the right that would later be recognized in the Lochner case. 
Now, after Slaughterhouse, the final blow to the Privileges and Immunities Clause came from the case of U.S. v. Cruikshank. Uh, now, this is a case I have covered uh, several times before on the show, uh, and it essentially went on to deny that the Privileges or Immunities Clause incorporated enumerated rights against the state, specifically the First and Second Amendment. Now, this is another case where pretty much every constitutional scholar across the board agree was wrongly decided. So, following Slaughterhouse, the Privileges and Immunities Clause really lay dormant for decades until Justice Hugo Black's 1947 dissent in the case of Adam Adamson v. California. Now, in Adamson, the court held that the Fifth Amendment protection against self-incrimination did not apply in state court when the jury was allowed to infer guilt from a defendant's refusal to testify. Justice Black's dissent argued strongly for incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states via the Fourteenth Amendment. Now, following that rejection of Justice Black's total incorporation model, the Privileges and Immunities Clause resumed uh, its constitutional slumber, so to speak, uh, aside from one brief mention in the 1968 case of Shapiro v. Thompson. Uh, now, this was all until a curious dissent ca uh, came in a case called Sands v. Roe in 1999. Now, in Sands, the court held that a statute discriminated against newly arriving residents of California by imposing resident residency requirements for certain welfare benefits, and that this was in violation of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And Justice Thomas here signaled his willingness to reanimate the Privileges or Immunities Clause in the right case, where he says, As Chief Justice Rehnquist points out, it comes as quite a surprise that the majority relies on the Privileges or Immunities Clause at all in this case. That is because, as I have explained, the slaughterhouse cases sapped the clause of any meaning. Although the majority appears to breathe new life into the clause today, it fails to address the historical underpinnings or its place in our constitutional jurisprudence. Because I believe that the demise of the Privileges or Immunities Clause has contributed in no small part to the current disarray of our 14th Amendment jurisprudence. I would be open to reevaluating this meeting in an appropriate case. Before invoking the clause, however, he says, we should endeavor to understand what the framers of the 14th Amendment thought that it meant. We should also consider what the clause should displace rather than augment portions of our equal protection and substantive due process jurisprudence. The majority's failure to consider these important questions raises the specter that the Privileges or Immunities Clause will become yet another convenient tool for inventing new rights limited solely by the predilections of those who happen at the time to be members of the court. So with that dissent, Justice Thomas breathed new life into a comatose clause, and as uh, Professor uh, Erwin Chermodinsky wrote, quote, for essentially the first time in American history, in Sands, the Supreme Court used the Privileges or Immunities Clause to invalidate a state law, so it is at least possible that the tiny pebble of Sands could 
portend a sea change in how the court henceforth may view the long dormant privileges and immunities clause, end quote. Now, it was 10 years later in McDonald v. Chicago that we had just such an appropriate case. Now, in the decade between Sands and McDonald, we begin to see a philosophical split in the lower courts where many district and circuit court judges would acknowledge the issues with Slaughterhouse and the 14th Amendment's due process substitution, uh, notably judges such as uh, Judge O'Scanlan uh, and uh, his dicta in the Ninth Circuit's Nordyke case. And in it, he cited Justice Thomas's dissent in Sands, and Judge O'Scanlan acknowledged the growing consensus that Slaughterhouse was wrongly decided. He further discussed the fact that substantive due process in many respects has carried the mantle that privileges or immunities was meant to accomplish. And he said that while a circuit court cannot overturn Slaughterhouse, we hope that the Supreme Court will take up this gauntlet in McDonald. And so now we get to McDonald v. Chicago. In this case, the Supreme Court uh, chose to uh, grant cert in uh, McDonald v. Chicago on the question presented, as we went over before, whether the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms is incorporated as against the states by the 14th Amendment's privileges or immunities or due process clause. Now, the petitioner's brief asked the Supreme Court to overrule Slaughterhouse, Crookshank, and Presser and strike down Chicago's handgun ban. In response to the petitioner's analysis of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, the respondents contended that the court should adhere to Slaughterhouse and reject incorporation under the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Now, more than 30 different amici filed briefs supporting the petitioners, and these amici included high-profile scholars who really spanned the ideological spectrum uh, from figures such as Jack Balkin to Randy Barnett to former Attorney General Edwin Meese, all urging the court to extend the right to keep and bear arms to the states through the Privileges and Immunities Clause. And also, just so you guys know, if you go and check the video description, uh, you will find not only the full McDonald case brief, but I have provided links to all of those relevant amicus curiae briefs. So, while libertarian uh, legal scholars have been calling for this restoration of this lost uh, constitutional doctrine for quite some time, uh, the shift to this position by progressive legal scholars as well in McDonald is significant, even if they were calling for unenumerated rights, uh, demonstrable in text and history, as well as a seemingly endless list of positive rights that would tend to go beyond the proper scope of the clause. Still, now, at this point, uh, I, I think it's important to uh, raise uh, an issue of respectful disagreement I have with another comment uh, that was left by the same person who uh, suggested covering this topic. Uh, now, they had mentioned that they believe uh, Thomas apparently doesn't give a fuck and wants to burn it all down through a hypertextualist reading. I don't see how that wouldn't unwind all of incorporation as inevitable. And so, here's the thing is, the fact is, 
many progressives, living constitutionalists, and purposivist scholars argue for an even more radical and sweeping unwinding of incorporation, going far beyond any suggestion that Clarence Thomas has ever made, including the Dobbs concurrence in what that is being criticized here. Now, I, this goes to a number of scholars. I, I'm thinking just off the top of people like Jack Balkin, Bruce Ackerman, Vicki Jackson, Harold Coe, and Frank Michaelman, to name but a few of the many examples. And I also must respectfully disagree that Justice Thomas's proposal would necessitate an inevitable unwinding of the incorporation doctrine itself. Let's not forget that privileges and immunities was a well-established common law doctrine long before either the Constitution or the 14th Amendment had been ratified, and Blackstone speaks extensively about the doctrine in his 1765 commentaries. There is really no reason to assume a tabula rasa approach. Instead, in classic common law fashion, the court should merely transfer its existing unenumerated rights jurisprudence to the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Now, because Slaughterhouse prevented this clause from taking its proper role within constitutional jurisprudence, the Supreme Court had defined unenumerated rights as almost exclusively through its substantive due process doctrine. But again, substantive due process was never meant to do this. So restoring the Privileges and Immunities Clause to its proper place in the constitutional structure would ground the Supreme Court's rights-protecting jurisprudence in a textually and historically sound foundation without rejecting the doctrine of substantive due process or incorporation. Indeed, substantive rights would be properly rooted in the text and history and original public meaning of the Constitution. This would provide a great clarity and credibility in the context of rights-based jurisprudence. The contemporaneous public documents and debates that we have contain many references to specific cases that Congress and the ratifying states sought to overturn and to specific evils that they sought to prevent, and the rights that they believe were meant to be protected by the Privileges or Immunities Clause can all be found throughout all these sources across much of our history. So, let's talk about Justice Thomas's McDonald concurrence. Now, while the controlling plurality's opinion, which was written by Justice Alito and joined in full by Chief Justice Roberts, Justices Scalia, and Justice Kennedy, did not take up Alan Gura's invitation to overrule Slaughterhouse in Crookshank, and they instead decided to incorporate the Second Amendment under the court's expansive reading of the Due Process Clause. And so, this left Justice Thomas, who only joined in part by incorporating the Second Amendment, but insisting on incorporation under the Privileges and Immunities Clause. In that case, he said, I agree with the court that the 14th Amendment makes the right to keep and bear arms set forth in the Second Amendment fully applicable to these states. I write separately because I believe that there is a more straightforward path to this conclusion, one that is more faithful to the 14th Amendment's text and history. I agree 
with that description of the right, but I cannot agree that it is enforceable against the states through a clause that speaks only to process. Instead, the right to keep and bear arms is a privilege of American citizenship that applies to these states through the 14th Amendment's Privileges and Immunities Clause. Now, he agrees with Gura that despite precedent long set by Slaughterhouse and Cruikshank, uh, is such an egregious abridgment of the original meaning of the Privileges and Immunities Clause that it would, it would be proper for the court to overrule them, and this would allow the Privileges and Immunities Clause to protect a number of both enumerated and unenumerated constitutional rights. And he goes on to say, As a consequence of this court's marginalization of the clause, litigants seeking federal protection of fundamental rights turned to the remainder of Section 1 in search of an alternative font of such rights. They found one in a most curious place, that sections command that every state shall guarantee due process to any person before depriving him of life, liberty, or property. Now, at first, litigants argued that the Due Process Clause incorporated certain procedural rights codified in the Bill of Rights against the states. He goes on, however, I cannot accept a theory of constitutional interpretation that rests on such tenuous footing. This court's substantive due process framework fails to account for both the text of the 14th Amendment and the history that led up to its adoption. Filling that gap with a jurisprudence devoid of a guiding principle. I believe the original meaning of the 14th Amendment offers a superior alternative and that a return to that meaning would allow this court to enforce the rights of the 14th Amendment is designed to protect with a greater clarity and predictability than the substantive due process framework has so far managed. He goes on, I acknowledge the volume of precedent that has been built upon substantive due process framework, and I further acknowledge the importance of stare decisis to the stability of our nation's legal system, but stare decisis is only an adjunct of our duty as judges to decide by our best lights what the Constitution means. Now, Justice Thomas would go on to elaborate why this drastic measure is justified and provides a framework for how it could be done. So he says, Moreover, as judges, we interpret the Constitution one case or controversy at a time. The question presented in this case is not whether our entire 14th Amendment jurisprudence must be preserved or revised, but only whether and to what extent a particular clause in the Constitution protects the original right at issue here. With the inquiry appropriately narrowed, I believe this case presents an opportunity to re-examine and begin the process of restoring the original meaning of the 14th Amendment agreed upon by those who ratified it. He goes on to quote Chief Justice John Marshall uh, when he says, It cannot be presumed that any clause in the Constitution is intended to be without effect. And that comes from Marshall's decision in the 1803 case of Marbury versus Madison. Thomas goes on to say, This is because the Court of Privileges or Immunities Clause precedents have presumed just that, and by that he means he, they have presumed to be without effect, that he sets them aside. And at this point in his opinion, uh, much as we have already done here, 
Uh, Justice Thomas gives a detailed history of the meaning and purpose of privileges and immunities, beginning with the common law and in colonial America. He moves on to the Privileges and Immunities Clause in the Articles of Confederation. He discusses it under Article 4, and he looks to Justice Bushrod Washington's Corfield v. Coriel precedent. He also discusses the Reconstruction-era legislation immediately before and after the ratification of the 14th Amendment, including the Civil Rights Act of 1866, the Freedmen's Bureau Bill, and the Civil Rights Act of 1861, and how the key drafter, of the Privileges and Immunities Clause, most notably John Bingham, explained one of the reasons for the 14th Amendment's Privileges and Immunities Clause was to guarantee constitutional legitimacy to those rights-protecting statutes. So Thomas's opinion goes on to say that at the time of Reconstruction, the term Privileges and Immunities had an established meaning as synonyms for rights. The two words standing alone or paired together were used interchangeably with the words rights, liberties, and freedoms, and had been since at least the time of Blackstone. The words privileges and immunities relate to the rights of persons, places, or property. A privilege is a peculiar right, a private law conceded to particular persons or places. And, in addition, dictionary definitions confirm this is what the public shared as an understanding of this term, and in it he refers to Noah Webster's American Dictionary, uh, the contemporaneous version. And he says, the fact that a particular interest was designated as a privilege or immunity rather than a right, liberty, or freedom reveal little about its substance. Blackstone, for example, used the term privileges and immunities to describe both the inalienable rights of individuals and the positive law rights of corporations. The group of rights bearers to whom the privileges or immunities clause applies is, of course, citizens. He says this tradition begins with our country's English roots. Parliament declared the basic liberties of English citizens in a series of documents ranging from Magna Carta to the Petition of Right and the English Bill of Rights. Now, here Thomas goes on to make an incredibly elegant and persuasive argument for why he believes the controlling plurality are incorrect uh, in assuming that recognizing both enumerated and unenumerated rights create such a special hazard uh, as should prevent the court from returning to the original meaning of the Privileges and Immunities Clause. So he goes on to say, it is argued that the mere possibility that the privileges or immunities clause may enforce unenumerated rights against the states creates special hazards that should prevent the court from returning to the original meaning of this clause. Ironically, the same objection applies to the court's substantive due process jurisprudence, which illustrates the risk of granting judges broad discretion to recognize individual constitutional rights in the absence of textual or historical guideposts. But I see no reason to assume that such hazards apply to the Privileges and Immunities Clause. The mere fact that the clause does not expressly list the rights it protects does not render it incapable of principled judicial application. The Constitution contains many provisions that require an examination of more than just constitutional text to determine whether a particular act is within Congress's power or is otherwise prohibited. 
He goes on, when the inquiry focuses on what the ratifying era understood the privileges or immunities clause to mean, interpreting it should be no more hazardous than interpreting these other constitutional provisions by using the very same approach. To be sure, interpreting the privileges and immunities clause may produce hard questions, but they will have the advantage of being questions the Constitution asks us to answer. I believe those questions are more worthy of this court's attention and far more likely to yield discernible answers than substantive due process questions. Now, the court for years created its own with neither textual nor historical support. He says three years after Slaughterhouse, uh, the court in Crookshank squarely held that the right to keep and bear arms was not a privilege of American citizenship thereby overturning the convictions of militia members responsible for the brutal Colfax massacre. Crookshank is not a precedent entitled to any respect. The flaws of its interpretation of the Privileges and Immunities Clause are made evidence by the preceding evidence of its original meaning, and I would reject the holding on that basis alone. Now, among the extensive list of relevant information that you will find linked down in this video's description, uh, I have a condensed version of Justice Thomas's McDonald concurrence that covers all the relevant points that I've really only briefly been able to touch on here. And I would highly, highly recommend people go read uh, that abridged opinion that was unfortunately too long for me to read here in this video in full as I had intended, because it really is truly a masterpiece of legal writing. But for now, we need to move on to the case of Washington v. Glucksburg and a framework for recognizing liberties protected by the Privileges or Immunities Clause. So adhering to a reconceptualized notion of the Privileges and Immunities Clause, our inquiry will continue in resolving how liberties under this clause should be recognized. How do we determine whether a substantive right should be protected? And to accomplish this end, what, uh, to accomplish this end, we start with the closest analog in modern constitutional jurisprudence, which would be the doctrine of selective incorporation. So, if the Privileges and Immunities Clause includes, includes certain unenumerated rights, the preferred approach, I believe, would be that of Glucksburg, which recognized both kinds of rights. Now, Glucksburg was a declaratory judgment action seeking to overturn Washington's ban on physician-assisted suicide. Now, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that the right to physician-assisted suicide is not protected by the Due Process Clause, and that the state ban is grounded in appropriate government interests, the court devised a two-part test for determining whether a liberty interest is constitutionally protected. First, the Due Process Clause specifically protects those fundamental rights and liberties which are objectively deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. And second, the court requires, in substantive due process cases, a careful description of the asserted fundamental liberty interest and applying the Glucksburg test will actualize the full protections of the Privileges and Immunities Clause. So this framework provides for the inclusion of both enumerated and 
unenumerated rights that are privileges or immunities, as well as the exclusion of federalism rights that are not privileges and immunities. And this brings us to the central question uh, of the topic we are discussing today. That is, what rights exactly would the Privileges and Immunities Clause enumerate, and on what basis? Now, obviously, a full exhaustive explanation of what rights, either enumerated or unenumerated, uh, would be protected by taking this originalist approach to the Privileges or Immunities Clause would be impossible to compile. So I think the best I could do is walk through one specific example of how a right once protected by substantive due process could be protected under the Constitution's Privileges and Immunities Clause. So, since this whole topic has come about because of the right to abortion that was overturned in Dobbs, let's look at how one might go about protecting abortion as a protected right that is among the privileges or immunities of citizenship. So as far as getting the court to take the position that we should return to an original public meaning of the Privileges and Immunities Clause in place of substantive due process, I think it's important to remember that that would first require getting five votes to go along with what only Justice Thomas so far has been willing to go along with in McDonald, and that is the overturn of Slaughterhouse in Crookshank, as was said in that case, because they are so deeply wrong They do not deserve to be held up as valid precedent, even after all these years. Now, that's difficult, but not impossible. Uh, Plessy stood strong for 50 years, but that case, too, was morally repugnant, and eventually we had a court that was willing to rule that way. So, despite the fact that every conservative justice, with the exception of Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, who is on the court, will claim the mantle of being a constitutional originalist and a statutory textualist. The only justices who even come close to a fairly consistent record of principled originalist textualist interpretation, excepting, of course, Justice Thomas, who is nothing if not the most consistent motherfucker to ever serve in the history of the court. But other than Justice Thomas, the only justices who ever come close to an ideological consistency of originalism and textualism are Neil Gorsuch and Samuel Alito. Now, while Gorsuch did seem to demonstrate a willingness to reconsider incorporation through the Privileges and Immunities Clause in the 2018 case of Tim's v. Indiana, he and Alito both could have chose to join Justice Thomas in Dobbs and created a controlling plurality or incorporation under the Privileges and Immunities Clause. However, in Dobbs, both judges made it perfectly clear that while they agree substantive due process is not a constitutionally sound doctrine and is really just carrying its own load as well as doing the expected work of the Privileges and Immunities Clause in accordance with its original public meaning, they still showed in Dobbs no desire to actually correct the error and would rather keep that protection of the Privileges and Immunities of Citizens of the United States, protected as an ancillary duty of the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. Therefore, I I see little reason to believe that this kind of change would actually come about, but theoretically, let's talk about what it would take if it did. Now, despite the fact that this is an issue that I think is very, very uh, unlikely to ever really be addressed, 
Uh, This is still an issue I've actually spent a great deal of time thinking about, so maybe I'm in a a better position than some to answer it. Um, And that is because I find myself in an odd and what I would consider somewhat unenviable position where, as a constitutional originalist, uh, I think Roe v. Wade was a terrible opinion bereft of even a modicum of legal merit. Moreover, I believe substantive due process as a right to privacy especially is an absurd, fictitious legal doctrine invented out of thin air by the Warren Court. And, at the same time, as a libertarian, what I see as the most fundamental of all rights is the absolute sovereignty of the individual, what we would refer to as libertarians as self-ownership. So when it comes to abortion, every woman should be entirely free to choose, as far as I'm concerned, her body, her choice. Now, this puts me in the odd position of both loving and hating the Dobbs case. Now, personally, just I, I really don't take too much issue with the current legal status of abortion, the idea that these states can have some say in regulating the procedure. Now look, I recognize that many people believe an unborn child is a person who has the same right to life as the rest of us throughout the pregnancy, and while I don't necessarily agree with that position, I do see their contention as a good faith argument that is at least worth taking into consideration. Therefore, the idea that we leave this issue up to the states to regulate, to me, seems like something of a reasonable reasonable compromise, actually. But, or not but, if, if states that are more conservative want to regulate the process earlier, and more liberal states want to regulate the process later or not at all, and as long as someone who is in a more restrictive state would be free to travel to another state for the procedure. I mean, that's not a a perfect, uh, you know, way to do it in my case. Not what I would necessarily prefer, but it does seem like an eminently reasonable compromise, uh, especially, especially considering how divisive of an issue this is. Maybe this is the closest we could actually get to something that both sides could maybe be happy with. I don't know. But, um... Look, I I think possibly a a better way to go about it is, let's say we have enough justices uh, existing to begin uh, dismantling substantive due process. Uh, I believe that there is a very solid argument to be made for incorporation of a right to abortion that even an originalist could, at least in theory, get behind under the standard of selective incorporation under Glucksberg's ordered liberty-based rights identified as fundamental in our nation's history and text. So there is a long-standing right derived from natural law that has also been recognized for many centuries, uh, as well as a right under the British common law, and it goes back uh, at least as far as the great English jurist Edward Coke. And this is the right of bodily autonomy, sometimes also referred to as bodily integrity. And before anyone says this, yes, I realize bodily autonomy was mentioned during the Dobbs oral arguments and disregarded. But you need to bear in mind the people making those arguments were idiots that didn't make a legal argument. What do I mean exactly? What I mean is, look, I don't care where you stand on the pro-life, pro-choice debate. Roe versus Wade was a terrible opinion that was entirely bereft of even a modicum of legal merit. 
Now, it just so happens that I have covered this case in an episode of Today in Supreme Court History. I will link to it down in the description if you want to see my summary of the case. But I'm sorry, the fact is, the only people who I think could disagree that Roe was a terrible opinion would have to be people who have never actually read the case brief for Roe. So when you go before the high court to defend a case that completely lacked legal merit and your separate argument for why it should be upheld anyway also entirely lacks legal merit, you shouldn't be surprised when the court rules against you. Now, the reason I say the argument made in Dobbs for bodily autonomy lacked legal merit is because they were arguing it as a matter of precedent. However, nothing in Roe ever addressed abortion as a right of bodily autonomy. It was protected as a right to privacy. And kind of a fun fact, I think a lot of people don't really realize, unless you read the opinion very carefully, is that it's not a woman's right to privacy that is being protected, mind you. When you read Harry Blackman's majority opinion, it becomes very clear that the opinion is protecting a doctor's right to privacy under the belief that the government has no business invading the doctor's right to practice medicine privately without government interference. And this is why it, uh, I think, is so stupid to see politicians, journalists, and abortion advocates saying stupid shit like Dobbs was the Supreme Court overturning a woman's right to bodily autonomy. I guess there should be no surprise that people making this argument are the same people who will uh, actually claim that what happened in Dobbs was an example of the court's overreach and usurpation of power. The simple fact is the usurpation of power occurred in 1973 when the court took an issue that only six states at the time considered legal and 43 states made explicitly illegal and simply declared it to be a right because, well, you know, reasons. So, what happened in Dobbs was a relinquishment of unjustified power on the part of the court. They recognized that abortion should not have, at the time, been a right uh, made up by seven unelected judges doing so under a completely fictitious legal doctrine that they clearly just made up as a results-oriented form of ruling. They wanted abortion, so they made up a reason with no basis in constitutional law, and now the court has returned that decision about how to handle abortion to the people. Which is why I am stunned at how many uh, idiots are saying that these unelected judges giving the decision back to the people through their elected legislatures is an existential threat to democracy. Because I guess nothing destroys democracy more than a greater reliance on the democratic process or, or something. I... I I don't know. Look, I think it's safe to say that anytime AOC and Stephen Colbert agree on something, you can guarantee it's completely fucking wrong. Turn to the people. What action would you like to see the Congress take? 
Well, I think uh, history really informs a lot, um, and it gives us lessons here, because this is not the first time that this has happened. Uh, in the 1800s, the Supreme Court was taken over uh, by the Confederate South and was starting to rule in ways that limited Abraham Lincoln, for example. And Why the fuck you lying? Why? What did Abraham Lincoln do? He signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Why you always lying? He ignored a, the gross overreach and abuse of power. During uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, attempt to, to restore the country during the Great Depression uh, with the Green New Deal, I mean, not the Green New Deal, the New Deal, the New Deal. Um, anyways, with the New Deal, um, what we saw was an overreach um, from the Supreme Court attempting to, to prevent us from passing these laws. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt threatened to expand the court. And in his adoption of that position, despite the fact that Congress didn't do it at that time, although Lincoln did. Um, oh my gosh, stop fucking lying. The, the fear of the court's power being minimized caused them to back off their overreach and abuse of power. Mm. You ready? Why the fuck you lying? Why you always lying? Oh my God, stop fucking lying. Always lying to me. You lying so much. You making it hard for me. But anyways, getting back to abortion under privileges and immunities. Now, an argument for a protection of abortion under bodily autonomy would require both sides to give a little. If you limited the right to, say, a first trimester abortion, when I believe absolutely everyone could agree we are talking about a period of pre-viability, what you do is you really handicap the social conservative argument that one must consider the personhood of the life of the fetus and therefore frame the restriction on abortion as an argument about saving the life of the fetus. Especially when you put that up against a long-held fundamental right that is rooted in natural law, in common law, and can be found as a deeply held fundamental right under Glucksberg's concept of ordered liberty that is deeply rooted in history, text, and tradition of this nation, which the right to bodily autonomy is, if argued correctly. Now, perhaps the strongest part of this argument is that you can find it deeply rooted in Supreme Court president to back your claim up. This goes as far back as 1891, at least, uh, in the case of Union Pacific Railway versus Bosford. And the Supreme Court issued its ruling based on an assertion of the common law principle that actually reads very much like the contemporaneous definition for bodily autonomy that we find defined by Edward Cook, uh, in his writings on the English common law. So in the Union Pacific Railway case, the court wrote, No right is held more sacred or is more carefully guarded by the common law than the right of every individual to the possession and control of his own person, free from all restraints or interferences of others, unless by a clear and unquestionable authority of law, as well said by Judge Cooley, the right to one person, the right to one's person, may be said to be a right of complete immunity to be left alone. 
So the issue in Union Pacific Railway Co. was the power of the court to compel a party to a litigation to submit to a surgical examination in the presence of witnesses in order to substantiate certain claims of injury. The original trial court rejected the notion, and it held that such power, uh, it, it, it rejected the notion that it held such a power to do that, I mean, excuse me, and the Supreme Court would go on to affirm that judgment. Now, they did this with language that leaves very little room for doubt or prevarication upon this principle, because Union Pacific Railway goes even further in supporting this claim. So in that case, the court found that the inviolability of the person is as much invaded by a compulsory stripping and exposure as by a blow. To compel anyone, and especially a woman, to lay bare the body or to submit it to the touch of a stranger without lawful authority is an indignity, an assault, and a trespass. And no order of process commanding such an exposure or submission was ever known to the common law in the administration of justice between individuals except in the very small number of cases based upon special reasons and upon ancient practice coming down from ruder ages, now mostly obsolete in England and never, so far as we are aware, introduced into this country. Now, uh, that's how we could deal with abortion. And I really, it doesn't seem terribly difficult for me to come up with uh, other fundamental rights that could be applied to other substantive due processes rights to make them privileges or immunities of citizenship, uh, such as uh, gay marriage. We, you know, this came about in Obergefell v. Hodges in 2014. Now, that would most certainly qualify as a right under Glucksburg's ordered liberty to uh, the liberty of contract. I mean, as far as the government is concerned, all a marriage is is a contract between two consenting adults. Now, frankly, I, I, I actually doubt conservatives would be interested in trying to ban gay marriage again, even if they could. But what I'm saying is if they did, there is no reason to think that Obergefell couldn't be protected by the privileges or immunities of citizenship through the liberty of contract. Now, I also uh, think it's worth pointing out that I don't think many of the rights secured by substantive due process are rights that any state would ever try to outlaw again for any reason, even if they could. This includes things like the access to contraception, interracial marriage, and integrated schools. I, I mean, does anyone actually think for a second that if Griswold, Eisenstadt, Loving v. Virginia, or Brown v. Board were no longer seen as explicitly protected by substantive due process that any state would try to actually ban any of those things? Personally, I, I really have a tough time seeing anyone uh, making that argument. And again, though, I mean... Uh, these are all things that could be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis under the Privileges and Immunities Clause. I simply don't have a time to go through each case and give an argument for everyone here today. This video is already long enough as it is. Um, I, I could do that in future videos if you, if anyone would like a video 
uh, talking about any of these other rights that I didn't get to today uh, and how they could be brought under privileges and immunities. But for today, that's really all I got for you guys. Now, uh, I would love to get your thoughts on the subject of this video down in the comment section below. I want to say thank you again to Star Dormany for suggesting this really, really great topic to cover. I want to thank everyone else for watching. Let me know what you thought by selecting that little thumbsy upy button or the little thumbsy downy button. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel so you don't miss out when I release new episodes of Legalese. And so, uh, until the next time, this has been Bob for Legalese. Uh, and, of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est. Motherfucker.